Hello, hello, Kristen here. Just wanted to let you know that this episode was recorded before the podcast name change. If you hear any old terminology, that's why. Thank you for listening. Hello, rock star, notable women. And if you are listening to this episode when it first airs, then Happy New Year to you. I am so excited to be with you in 2017, and we have so many exciting things in store. Now, if you read my blog or hang out on the Facebook page at all, you know that my goal for 2017 is to bring you 100 women's stories. And those will be on the blog, here on the podcast, as well as some Facebook Live going on there, and then also Notable TV, which will be launching in March. The first Notable Woman that I am bringing you here in 2017 is Fagala Jacobs. Now, Fagala is a CEO and president of an organization that works with public health policy and community health centers. And she also has a fabulous, fabulous story about getting her degree later in life. And we also talk a lot about her mother, who was a huge influence on her. So it's a really fabulous episode. Fagala is such a delight, such an inspiration. I hope you enjoy her story, and I'll catch you again on the flip side. Welcome to the Notable Woman Podcast. Today's interview is with the amazing and wonderful Fagala Jacob. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. Yay. So we're going to dive right in. So can you tell us a little bit about what it is that you do right now uh, for your job? Sure. So um, I work at an organization that's a foundation. And what we do is we support community health centers around the country. Um, There are 1,500 community health centers in the country. They operate about 9,000, almost 10,000 locations nationally. And primarily uh, what community health centers do is um, serve communities that are medically underserved, often many people who are under, who are uninsured or underinsured, and our work helps them do their work more effectively. That's awesome. What is your title and role? Um, so I'm the president and CEO of the foundation, and my role is um, kind of everything from making the coffee to making the strategic decisions, which is what I think is kind of common in a small organization. Excellent. I wanted to make sure that everyone knows that you are the boss. You are the Well, I know you refer to a board. I kind of am. True. I do refer to a board. But it's super awesome that you're at at that position. So how did you get there? Oh, wow. You know, you kind of want to say that everything is linear, but really nothing is linear, right? So um, my background is in public health. So I guess in that way, I can say there's definitely a a connection um, to what I do today. Um, And what I studied in school was public health and urban planning. And early on in my career, just had some incredible opportunities and incredible mentors, really, um, in in my work, which was mostly focused on planning and strategic planning for healthcare. Um, somewhere along the way, uh, I ended up in a setting 
that I thought I wouldn't work in, which was a hospital setting. And I ended up being asked to take on a job that I never thought I would take on, which was really an operational administrative job. I had really come from more of a kind of planning and policy background. And um, the president of our hospital came to me and he said, "Um, I have an idea and I'd like you to take on a role in operations. And I said, oh, that's a lovely idea. Uh, Thank you. I'd really rather not. And he said, (laughs) no, I don't think you understand. (laughs) So I kind of went a little bit um, kicking and screaming into that role. And and the funny thing about it was that back when I was in school, um, I definitely had the experience of, you know, kind of feeling like I knew a whole lot uh, and was kind of ready to take on the world fairly young in some ways. Even though I was really very introverted, I kind of felt like, you know, I know what I want to do professionally and I know how I want to do it. And so the program that I was in, had some requirements that um, in my, you know, deep wisdom of a very young person, I just didn't think I personally needed to fulfill them. I thought I would be fine without them. And so went to the chair of my department and told him that I really felt that I should be exempted from those requirements. I'm not sure where I got the gall to do that, but I did. And um, what I was told was that uh, I could petition my department and the school to be exempted from certain requirements. And so I did. And when you when you petition, you kind of have a hearing where you explain your rationale for, you know, why you want to kind of change the program a little bit to suit your needs. And um, then a committee of you know, evaluates whether whether your rationale is sound and lets you know whether that's something they're going to approve. So Much to my surprise, my petition to be exempted from certain requirements was approved. And and what I was asking to be exempted from were kind of the core courses in um, organizational uh, and and operational management for healthcare. So I got exempted from those because I said I, you know, was – really having more of a policy focus in my work and that where I thought my work would go was in a policy direction. And I ended up kind of supplementing my academic program with other things that were more policy oriented. So cut to a bunch of years later when I suddenly get this new position, it's in operations, and um, I had a kind of uh, office that was deep in the bowels of the hospital, deep in a dungeon, and um, I shared that office with a great, great lady, but mostly people didn't know that we were down there. We weren't supposed to be in our offices very much. We were supposed to be out and around on the floor of the hospital. And One day, there's a knock at the door, and I open the door, and there's one of the messengers there, and he's carrying a bunch of flowers. And I said, oh, are those for uh, Miss Galante, my, my office mate? He goes, no, they're they're for you. <laughs> take out. I take the flowers. I open. I open the little note, and the card is um, from the chair of of my former department that I'd been in school, saying, "Heard about your new position, and if you ever want to come back and take those courses, door is open." Um, but what it gave me the opportunity to do was to get really. Um, 
hands, you know, sort of head down and hands dirty in, in operational kind of work. And I discovered that I loved it. I discovered that um, I really liked the problem-solving aspect of it. I really liked the immediacy of it. Um, policy work is great, but it's always, it's often, not always, but often about the long haul. And operations is often about um, more immediate kinds of problem-solving. Um, but I found that I really liked it. And um, through that role, had the chance to do a number of different things in that setting and then to move out of that setting uh, into an, an organization that um, needed some help getting back on its uh, desired strategic path, desired financial path. Um, and I came into that organization when it had been given a six-month lifeline uh, by our state regulators to come up with a plan. And so at that time, I was offered the position, and I remember asking um, uh, my boss, you know, well, what if, what if we don't get it done in six months? And he said, well, if we don't get it done in six months, then... I guess we're done, but that means you're done, I'm done. The, you know, this part of the organization is done, so let's figure it out. Um, and it took us nine months, but what that nine-month plan was um, really allowed us to grow that organization, and that organization's the predecessor to the organization that I work at now. So it was an organization that had emerged from Community Health Center. It was one of the um, very earliest of the community health centers founded in New York City in 1967 and had initially operated as a kind of small storefront operation um, affiliated with the hospital and ultimately um, spun out and grew and grew and grew. And I came into the part of the organization that ran um, network services and that ran a managed care plan. And so my role was to help get that managed care plan back on track um, and be able to kind of write it with the, the regulators. Um, and we did that. And um, the results of doing that were that we were able to take the plan, which was pretty small when I came into the organization. We had about 25,000 um, people enrolled and really grow it very, very dramatically. Um, and that was important to us because what that really meant is that more people were getting coverage and more people could then have better access to health services. Um, but ultimately, what our board decided was that they didn't see our mission as really being um, on the health insurance uh, side of health care. And they really saw our ongoing mission as being, you know, on the one hand aligned with direct services and health centers, but is really wanting to find a way to um, give back to the health center community because one of the things that is really, um, I think, unique about the health center community is um, how much health centers are, you know, aligned with one another in mission and how much we all really benefit from an extraordinary strong national advocacy um, and membership organization and also from related statewide organizations. And so our board sort of sat down and said, we could try to grow the membership 
in the insurance side of the organization. We couldn't really do it organically because of the way policy had evolved in New York. It really would have meant, you know, buying up some some smaller, similar plans. Or we could really think about where we'd like to be over the long run and think about our, our broader mission and how we could accomplish that. And so ultimately what happened was that um, the health center side of our organization spun out and it became freestanding and still operates um, today uh, for extraordinary sites in New York City uh, that provide comprehensive health care to New Yorkers. And um, we then created a new entity, which is the foundation entity um, with that mission that I described of really being able to support community health nationally. That so is that's amazing. Our, that's our story. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And so much for me to dive into there. I think my first question is going to be, what got you personally interested in public health first? Why did you pursue that education-wise and then throughout your career? Sure. So I think that's a great question, Kristen. And I think that for me, you know, so I mentioned earlier, my, my background's in public health. It's also in urban planning. Um, but I think that for me, where it really came from was having a kind of social justice perspective and really feeling like whatever work I did, um, I really saw as it um, being aligned with my interests in seeing social change uh, happen and in finding ways to really tackle uh, discrimination and discriminatory practices, um, you know, that I observed and and that I was aware of. So I saw healthcare as a way to do that, and I think that early on, um, I think in some in in some ways, you know. I, I did not, for example, go to college saying, this is what I want to do. I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, I didn't graduate from college saying, this is what I want to do. I had no idea what I wanted to do, um, you know, as a career, or as a profession. But what I really knew is that um, I wanted to be involved in some way in um, being able to effectuate change and in some way being able to um, either uh, affect policy directly or affect policy indirectly, um, but really through that lens of, of social justice and social action. That is amazing. I love hearing that. I think that that is fabulous. And that brings me to something that is going on currently in the news that we're hearing a lot about. So the first question I want to ask is, how has the Affordable Care Act affected the health centers that you work with? That that's another great question. So, um, you know, health centers serve everybody, irrespective of their ability to pay. And so, um, you know, for many many years, what health centers have done is they have not only provided care to people who are insured, but also to people who have no coverage, who have no insurance, and they offer uh, services, very comprehensive services, um, at low cost based on a sliding fee scale. But the more that people with some kind of coverage use health center services, the better able health centers are to really expand their capacity overall, right? So revenue that comes in 
through uh, insurance, whether it's private insurance or commercial insurance or or public insurance, um, is revenue that really strengthens the base. And so one of the things that my organization does is we support a lot of policy research um, that um, we get to be involved in, and we've got a couple you know, a, a couple of ways that we do that, but our core relationship is actually with um, the School of Public Health at George Washington University called the Milken Institute School of Public Health. And they've really got the premier uh, research group uh, working on health center policy. Um, and I think they're really ideally situated to, to do what they do because of their presence in Washington. But one of the things that they've done is done a number of studies really looking at looking to answer your question, um, you know, looking to really provide the evidence base that says, here's what the ACA means. Here's how it helps expand coverage. Here's what it means in communities. Here's how it is, you know, more effective in helping people get into care. And so if you look at some of the work that um, have come out of our collaboration with the university over the past couple of years, it's really all about that topic. And what you certainly see is more sites, um, a lot of growth in the number of people served, and a lot of growth in um, the numbers, uh, not only of people served, but the numbers of people coming to health centers who have coverage. So one of the places that that gets to be really important, Kristen, is that, um, you know, health centers provide essentially um, comprehensive primary care and preventive care. And they also provide a lot of the kinds of services that help people access care. So for example, um, transportation or translation and interpretation, you know, things that could be access barriers for some people that might really prevent them from being able to get the health care that they need, health centers do all of that. Um, but where I think that health centers and people who get their care at health centers are sometimes challenged is getting the specialty care or getting the tertiary care that happens outside the walls of the health center. Um, in, in, you know, most cases, there are strong relationships, let's say, between health centers and their local hospital for certain kinds of services. Um, but it's very hard, as you probably know, to get access to specialty care. And it's especially hard to get access to specialty care if you have no coverage. And so I think one of the things that's always been challenging, even for the strongest health centers with the best relationships with um, you know secondary providers or tertiary providers in their communities is for people who need very highly specialized services or for people who need um, you know certain kinds of medical clinical care getting access to that and so one of the things that I think has really happened is an expansion of access for things that happen outside the walls of the health center um, you know on the other hand the challenging thing is that um, there are always cues and you know there are always you know there are always weights and there's an extent to which what you do see as more people get insurance is suddenly people who haven't been able to access care before and may have you know may have really had to forego care because of their financial circumstances are getting into care um, but sometimes what that means 
means is it's a longer time to get an appointment, for example, or maybe a longer time to wait to see, you know, your doctor or your, your nurse practitioner when you need a visit. But I think overall, you know, it's been phenomenally, phenomenally successful. And I think, you know, um, the the health center movement really celebrated its 50th anniversary this past year. So did so did Medicaid and Medicare, and I think in many ways you know Medicaid, which I think isn't very well understood by people. You know, Me- Medicaid has just been an extraordinarily you know an extraordinarily positive insurance program, and the ACA in many ways follows on that lead of really extending comprehensive care. So. I know, you know, certainly I know there are lots of um, individual stories of people who haven't really had good experiences or people who are in the healthcare marketplace who've really faced um, rates, for example, that are very high, rates, you know, rates that don't seem like they're in the in the realm of affordable. And I think that those are real problems and those are problems that we have to figure out. And certainly I don't think that the ACA um, is perfect by any measure. But I think that the mere fact that millions of people who had no coverage um, now have coverage, you know, is an extraordinary accomplishment and a very important accomplishment. And I think, you know, coverage on its own, though, um, doesn't work unless people have places to get their care. And that's really where health centers come in. It's it's really providing the access points so that when people have coverage, that coverage has some real meaning rather than just being able to say, I have this insurance card. It's I have this insurance card and now I can go get care or take my child for care or take my parents for care, you know, that they were never able to access before. I, that's a very, very good point. And I know that health center access is huge. I live in New York City, as you, so we have a lot of access. But I have lived around the country, having freelanced in the theater for a long time. And it's often been a challenge in certain places to get access to health care. They may have a theater that I'm working at, but they might not have a health center or an urgent care or some place, and I might have an actor that needs to go somewhere, or I myself have to go somewhere, and it has certainly been a challenge. Now, a question I would like to ask, here we are, it's December of 2016, and this episode is going to air in the beginning of January of 2017, and we have a President-elect Trump and a Republican Congress with uh, certainly, they have been talking about repealing the ACA for many, many years now. So what sort of work is your organization doing to prep for what we don't know is going to happen exactly? Wow. So, you know, I should have anticipated that question and, and I didn't. Um, but I do think that a lot of the work that, that we have been doing um, is going to help us in that regard. So one of the things that we're doing is we tend to try to work as collaboratively as possible. Um, we have a couple of different um, advisory groups that we use to help us figure out a few different things, to help us figure out what should we be focusing our research on, to help us figure out what should we be focusing our grant making on. Um, and in that same vein, um, we are you know, trying to get together, including with groups of other funders, to really try to assess 
what's happening now? How do we understand the landscape? And is that going to make us think differently strategically about how we work and where we can have impact? I can't tell you that we have the answer. Um, I can certainly tell you that, you know, one of the things about health centers, and this is in, in general, not any, you know, sort of single health center, is that community health centers have really enjoyed very widespread bipartisan support. Um, you know, they have um, survived some very trying times, including, for example, you know, the Reagan block grant years. They really thrived, including under, you know, extraordinary support um, from uh, you know, during the, the last Bush administration, um, and certainly under under President Obama. And I think that, you know, a few months ago, before we knew the outcome of the election, what we were really thinking was there's going to be another growth boom in health centers. Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure now what that's going to look like, but I do know that on the advocacy side, um, that health centers are great at uh, mobilizing health center advocates um, and really telling the health center story to their electeds, to their legislators. So I think there's going to be a lot of work in that arena, supporting the research and the evidence base that makes the case for health centers. We are definitely going to be putting our heads together with organizations to think about, do we need to realign some of our strategies, you know, with respect to, you know, grant making or program or research, for example. Um, and certainly, I think, trying to help support those organizations that are on the front line, especially with respect to, to advocacy. I mean, I think the other thing, just in terms of the last few years, and I think that this may, and I'm mentioning it because I think it may also play out over the next few, is that, of course, as you know, Kristen, you know, when the ACA um, was was first uh, introduced, what we all anticipated was that um, there would be a nationwide expansion of Medicaid. And of course, the Supreme Court ruling, in effect, made the expansion of Medicaid optional at the discretion of the state. And so what that ended up meaning is that there are some states where Medicaid was expanded, was expanded and where a lot more people got into coverage um, and, and consequently got into care, and other states where Medicaid was not expanded. Um, and so, and so what that meant is that, you know, lower income people who might really have benefited from the expansion were basically locked out. They didn't qualify for subsidies on the exchange. They really, um, they, they were locked out of Medicaid. And in states where there was no Medicaid expansion, it has been, um, I think, effectively harder, not only for the communities and the patients, but certainly for the providers to try to meet the continuing demand. Um, I think one of the things that we have to anticipate is if there are efforts to modify, I'll get to the, I'll get to that ugly R word in a minute. But if there are, you know, if there are efforts to modify uh, the ACA, you know that it's going to be uneven and it's going to be felt unevenly across the states. And I mention that because I think that that'll, you know, go into our strategy certainly. Um, you know, so I'm hardly the policy expert. Um, although there are some terrific uh, policy experts who I work very, very closely with. And I think the thing about repeal is that, um, you know, repeal is very, very complicated. Um, and repeal certainly can't happen 
all at once. Um, and many of the things that we, you know, have come to think of as really being part of um, the landscape of healthcare coverage are really very much tied into how the ACA works. Um, but what can happen is certain aspects, you know, of the ACA can effectively be dismantled. Um, and I don't think it would be sensationalist to say, you know, that if what we've been hearing from, uh, you know, the, the president-elect and some of his appointees were to go forward, that that kind of dismantling would begin um, you know, soon, um, and that we really have to be poised for it. And I think, you know, certainly the other thing, um, you know, that's um, very important for us to keep our eye on is, of course, related to women's health. Um, you know, community health centers um, provide comprehensive care across the lifespan um, and offer, you know, preventive uh, health care for, for women as well as for their families. Um, certainly, we know that, you know, Women and women's health, um, you know, are, I think, very much under fire. And I think that that's something that we need to pay attention to as well. First and foremost, I want to say thank you for replying to my curveball question there. I think you responded mm -hmm. excellently. And I think a lot of people forget that a part of the ACA was that women could no longer be discriminated against in their coverage mm -hmm. and that genders had to be funded, paid equally. And so certainly I think that's something that for a lot of people who who came sort of into adulthood under Obama might not quite understand what that will mean for them if if that were to go away. I, I think that's a really, really good point. You know, I, I have uh, young adult kids myself, um, you know, who have certainly uh, benefited um, you know, from uh, the provisions of, of, of the ACA rollout. And it's really terrifying, you know, as you point out, um, you know, there are you know, in spite of some of the challenges, there's some wonderful things, including, um, you know, the fact that people couldn't be discriminated against for pre-existing conditions, um, you know, but what happens when, um, you know, there becomes this, um, you know, kind of either slower whittling away or what I fear, you know, maybe quicker whittling away is that some of those things, I think, may be the things that go first. And so people whose health care situations have been maybe the most challenged um, and who in some ways have the greatest to lose, people who have chronic illnesses, for example, um, you know, or chronic conditions, um, you know, or people who have children, you know, who, who are sick or, you know, who need some kind of ongoing care, um, I think it's very, very worrisome. And I think that, um, you know, it's something that we need to really keep our eye on. Absolutely. And certainly on, in episode two of the Notable Woman podcast, I spoke mm -hmm. with Julie Morganletter, who has a chronic illness, mm -hmm. and she and I speak on a regular basis now about what it will mean for her as a person with chronic illness if the Affordable Care Act is either rolled back or repealed dismantled, whatever ends up happening. So thank mm -hmm. you for laying that out for us and explaining it in a, a way I think that a lot of people will will make sense to them. Now I want to switch gears just a little bit and talk about a degree that you recently finished. Well, almost, not quite. Oh, um, I'm, I'm early, sorry. 
No, that's okay. I thought I would be finished. I hoped I would be finished by now. But um, I'm actually finishing up my doctorate, um, which is another one of those really long stories. But um, I am finishing uh, a degree um, in uh, public health, uh, public health leadership. And um, it has been a very long and winding road. So um, I actually started doctoral work a very, very long time ago, before my kids were born. Um, You know, I said earlier I didn't really know what I wanted to do career-wise and kind of toyed at one point with thinking maybe I wanted to have more of an academic career and started in more of a traditional academic kind of Ph.D. program um, and discovered very quickly it was not for me, and that was kind of when I ended up in this, you know, health, um, health delivery and health policy world. Um, but about, oh, I'm trying to think about when this was. About seven or eight years ago, I realized that um, I'd really always wanted to go back to school, Kristen. Um, I was very much inspired by my mother. Um, to want to do that. So um, let me digress and tell you that one of the reasons that um, I was a little slower in getting done, some some family issues. My mom passed away just a year ago. Um, But it, you know, it kind of threw me a little bit in terms of my my timetable. But um, my mother was a really extraordinary role model for me and in many ways but but one of the ways that she was extraordinary is that my mother had had the opportunity to have one year of college um in 1938 1939 um in Poland uh and she was um you know at the time a young Jewish teenager in Poland with one year of school her aspirations were to study science and I think that she genuinely hoped that she might be able to go go elsewhere in Europe to be able to do that. Um, but of course, and I think this is a lesson for, you know, for all of us, we think a lot about history these days and we ought to keep thinking about it and talking about it. Her education was interrupted um, by the Holocaust and um, she never had the opportunity to complete school. She never had the opportunity to get her college degree. And um, she survived the war in Europe, um, met my father at the end of the war. Uh, They lived in a displaced persons camp in Germany for a few years while they waited to get visas. And then they came to the U.S. And she came to the U.S. in 1949, um, you know, as a young bride. Um, She didn't speak any English. My father went out to work uh, and she stayed home and and kept the house and had kids, Um, but really maintained her interest in in education. She became one of these people who was like a a very avid user of the New York Public Library. She taught herself English. She learned English by, you know, talking to my dad when he came home from work and by listening to the radio. And then there was this newfangled television and my parents got a television set. And, you know, she, she learned English and went to the library and talked to her neighbors. And meanwhile, my mother was fluent in many languages, having lived in a number of different countries in Europe during the war years and, and after. Um, but 
and, and really encouraged all of us to get an education. Um, and my brother and sister are older than I am. So they went off to school. And finally, the year that I was starting college, my mother, who was not young at the time, she was 57 uh, at the time, said, you know, I really always wanted to go to college and I never got to and I'm going to go now. Now, mind you, she had no experience with, you know, going to school in English, no formal training in, you know, things that people have to do in college, write a paper in English, take notes in English. Um, And even though her English was quite good and, you know, she had worked over the years, she spoke a very heavily accented English and, of course, didn't know how to do the kind of writing, you know, that you need to be able to do in an academic environment. But I was going off to college and she said, me too. (laughs) Um, So uh, she enrolled um, first in one class and she still had it in her mind that what she really wanted to do was get a degree in the sciences. She wasn't quite sure in what, but something in the sciences. And, you know, back in the day, some of some of your listeners um, will, will, this will not be part of their experience, but, you know, you needed quarters to use the payphone and you called home once a week. And so, you know, I would call home once a week and call my parents, collect my quarters or, you know, call collect. And so I went to call my mom a couple of of months into school, I was away at school, and I asked her, you know, if she, uh, you know, what she was thinking. And she said, well, you know, I'm thinking I'm definitely going to continue. I've talked with my advisors and I want to add some courses and I'm going to go the whole way. I want to do a degree. And I said, so are you still thinking about the sciences? And she laughed and she said, you know, DNA had not been discovered the last time I was in school. So so that was the end of her studying sciences, but she ended up um, finishing her undergraduate degree, getting a, a degree in um, social welfare and English. She did a joint major. And when she was done with that, she was in her early 60s by this point, and she continued to work while going to school. She decided to go get a master's degree. And so I tell you all of that to say, you know, my mom got a master's degree, finished up when she was about 65, and at the age that many people are thinking of retiring, my mother started a whole new career, um, and she started a, a new career as a professional social worker. And so, you know, cut to me, I was, you know, sort of sitting around feeling a little, um, you know, A, like I had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder for never having finished, but B, feeling like even though I had had an interesting, you know, professional life, um, like a lot of working parents, most of my energy had really gone into my family life um, and trying to balance my family life and my professional life and raising two kids. Um, And so suddenly, you know, my kids were grown. Um, I had one going off to college. I had one, you know, who was a sophomore in, in, in high school and thinking about college. And I said, wow, I could really like pick up a book and read it cover to cover if I wanted to. Or I could really take a course and the world will not come crashing down if mom isn't home, you know, to make sure that dinner gets on the table. And so um, I decided to do that. First, I took a course and then I enrolled in a certificate program. Um, I was doing a lot of data work. 
but I felt like I felt like I was really kind of old school in my skill set um, around data and data analysis, and so I ended up um, doing a certificate program in public health informatics, and through that program met some incredible faculty. Um, who uh, encouraged me to pursue my doctorate. So in 2012, uh, I started, um, and it'll have taken me, you know, five years front to back um, to to finish. Um, But I'm going to be defending my dissertation hopefully very early in the year. Um, And as I told my advisor the other day, I'm walking in commencement in May, so I'm going to be done. (laughs) I am walking in commencement in May. Um, You know, but it's been... um, you know, uh, a long, a long path, uh, a challenging path. Um, I've gotten to, you know, what's been really great for me is meeting other people, some not quite as old as I am, you know, but certainly other returning students. One of my um, advisors, whom I adore, um, actually went back and got his doctorate. He started when he was 60. Um and so he's been a great, you know, in, encourager and inspiration to me. So the only thing, Kristen, that I really wish is that um, I wish my mom had lived to see me finish. Um, you know, she she on the one hand really wanted me to finish and really encouraged me. Um, but on the other hand, the way I think that parents often do, um, you know, she was always worried that I was taking on too much. You know, is it too much? You have a big job. Is it too much? You know, you you, you still have a family. Is it too much? You know, how can you do all of this? Um, you know, but at the end of the day, she really um, encouraged me, um, you know, really very, very much encouraged me. Um, and, you know, I wish that uh, she were here to see it done. My condolences for you to your mother, but I think this is such an honor for her and she would she would love it. I think she really would. I, I think, um, you know, I think she uh, continued, uh, you know, she continued to work uh, much later uh, in her life. She continued to stay active in learning opportunities much later in her life. So she's really been an inspiration to me. So thank you. I will certainly be calling you Dr. Jacobs as soon as you give me the sign, and I will know. <laughs> it's time to call you doctor. Just, just, just for two minutes. Just for two minutes. I've told my kids that, you know, the day after commencement, they're, they're going to have to call me Dr. Jacobs, and then we'll be done. I think not- I call everyone by their whatever their title is. If you're a reverend, I will call you reverend. If you're a doctor, you worked very hard for it, and you deserve it. So the least well, I can do is roll out the red carpet and say your correct title. <laughs> Well, it's funny because I actually do the same. I've had some back and forth with a very um, esteemed colleague of mine who's kind of the the elder statesman founder of the community health center movement um, to whom I always refer as a doctor. And, you know, he'll always write me and he'll say, you know, at this point, you can call me Jack. It's like doctor. Um, Dr. Jack, maybe. Yeah. So I share that sentiment, um, you know, but I'm, 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 I'm not such a formal person, so. Well, when it comes to me, I appreciate that. I will still like you call you doctor. Now, I just want to because I'm sort of a little bit of a romantic. I don't know if you know this, but can you tell us a story of your parents meeting? Because that would make my heart happy. Well, it actually is a very, very romantic story. Um, And, you know, 
I'm not the family historian, um, so I don't want to get any of the facts wrong, but I think that the story goes something like this. So my mother was very, very lucky um, to survive the war years, um, primarily in Soviet Central Asia. Um, I'm not sure, um, you know, uh, if if people are really familiar with with this, you know, part part of of the history of some of the Jews of Eastern Europe. But my mother was from um, a city that's now part of of Lithuania, um, but was then part of Poland. It's uh, it's called Vilnius or or Vilna in in Yiddish, um, and Vilna is very far east. Um, and so what that meant is that there were people who were able to flee east and, and my mother's family, part of my mother's family, even though many of her family did not survive the war. My mother and her mother and sister were able to, to flee east and they survived the war um, in, in great distress and in great poverty, but they survived in Soviet Central Asia um, in the area um near uh, Tashkent and Uzbekistan. And if you've ever looked at a, at a map, you know, you see that that's like, I mean, it's the Soviet Union, but it is so close, you know, to, to Asia and to Central Asia. Um, and at the end of the war, people were being repatriated to their home countries. And, you know, it wasn't like today where even even in countries where there are efforts to suppress the media, um, you know, where where there is the internet, where everyone knows what's happening immediately, right? So it took a long time for news to travel. And I think people didn't really quite understand that Poland had been decimated. And certainly um, Jewish Poland, uh, you know, had been decimated, which, which meant that there really weren't communities or cities for people to return to. Um, but my mother didn't know that. Her family didn't know that. And so when the borders were reopened and people could go home, they thought they were going to go home. They thought they were going to go to Poland and restart their lives. Uh, my grandmother was a widow. She was a small business owner. She owned a, a bakery. Um, and um, she was uh, quite young in our terms at the end of the war. So in, you know, in 1946, my grandmother was 46 years old, um, but she already felt like an old woman, and she was worried about, you know, starting over her adult daughters. Would they marry? Um, but I think that they all sort of felt like they would be able to go back to Poland and start over. And of course, as they started to um, head head back toward the west by train, what they began to understand as the train stopped in city after city was basically that their home cities had been devastated. They had been destroyed. Um, on the train, uh, this group of three ladies, my mother, her younger sister, and her mother, met a group of three gentlemen, uh, my father and his two best friends, uh, 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 his and and his best friends uh Daniel and and Vacek were traveling with him they were also intending to go to Poland or at least uh you know using Poland as some kind of way station and they also you know were kind of devastated to learn that their home cities uh no longer existed um but in the case of the gentlemen um you know they they met the ladies on this long train trip they actually got off the train in Poland my mother my mother and her mom and sister had sort of realized that 
Poland was not likely to work and they had and they decided they were going to try to get to Germany and stay in Germany and figure it out from there. But my father and his friends got off the train, very quickly realized that they were not going to be able to make a a life uh, for themselves in Poland and got back on the train. And very long story short, uh, my father and my mother uh, became romantically involved and my father's friend, Daniel, and my mom's sister became romantically involved. And as Vatsik said, uh, your grandma was lovely but too old and there was no <laughs> third sister. So their friend Vatsik actually remained a lifelong bachelor, um, never married. Uh, but my parents, you know, met on that train, uh, married in a displaced person's camp, um, and then came to the U.S. a few years and, and started their lives here. That is a wonderful story. I'm so glad that I asked. I love it. I'm Thank so glad you. you did. They were, you know, my dad died many years ago already, um, but at the point at which he died, they had been married for, for 50 years. Um, and, you know, they just had, um, you know, an extraordinary life, you know, the life that immigrants have when you come to a new place and don't know the language and don't know the culture and have to start all over. And they started all over um, and, you know, were just devoted to their kids and devoted to their community and had a had a great life. That's amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Now I'm going to switch it up a little bit and ask you my favorite ending questions. And my first is, what is the biggest assumption that people make about you? Oh, wow. Um, uh, maybe that I'm a bit of a snob. And I think it's really that I'm a bit of an introvert or more than a bit of an introvert. Um, so I think that people sort of assume that I'm like unapproachable, um, but it's really mostly because I'm shy. <laughs> so I think that that happens to a lot of people. So it's good that you point that out. A lot of people are introverted and shy and people mistake that for being snobbish or not social or something like that. And I feel like it's a skill set that I had to learn to sort of try to be, um, to appear, uh, you know, less introverted um, so that people wouldn't mistake it for either disinterest or, you know, coldness or snobby attitude. <laughs> That's, I appreciate you sharing that. Now, what would be one takeaway you'd want people to get from this podcast episode? Wow. So this is my platform. Um, get involved. Get involved. Get involved. Get involved. Stay involved. Pick your cause. Pick your passion. Doesn't matter what it is. But, you know, I think for for many of us, um, you know, the outcome of this election um, is maybe not what we anticipated. Um, and I think Everybody can do something to better their community, to better things around them. And everyone's got a passion, you know, whether it's healthcare or um, education. Um, and it doesn't, you know, the things that we do um, don't have to feel like they're huge, but everything has a ripple effect, you know, get involved in your kid's school, get involved in your, you know, place of worship 
get involved on an issue that you care about. Go on a march if it moves you to go on a march, but get involved. And even and you know even we introverts can get involved. So for me, I think that you know, and especially I think because um, it's winter, it's dark, it's kind of you know it's cold, it feels bleak. Um, the environment feels bleak, um, and I think the feel things can feel less bleak even for an introvert in the company of like-minded people and if you feel like you can get stuff done. Um, and so I would just say get involved, help people get stuff done. It'll, um, I think, in the long run has a huge ripple effect that can be really, really important. Excellent. Now, might you have a book that you would love to recommend to the <gasps> Notable Woman audience? Oh, my God. Goodness, what an opportunity. So here so so here's the book. Um there's a great new book that just came out. Um uh that uh oh my god, it was sitting right here next to me. Um and it is by Thomas J. Ward. Um and it's about the first community health center. Um, and uh, it's called Out in the Rural, a Mississippi Health Center, and it's War on Poverty. Um, it was just published by Oxford University Press, and it's just an extraordinary book. And what it's about is um, the founding of the first rural health center in America, um, which was founded in Mississippi in the 1960s, um, and how that came to be. But it's not like... Um, you know, I say history, um, and certainly, you know, Dr. Ward, who wrote it's a historian, but it's one of the most engaging history books you've ever read. Um, I, I know some of the players and know of some of the other players, but that's not why I loved it. I loved it because it's really a social history and kind of living history, and it really interweaves the story of the individuals who got the health center started with the story of what was going on from a policy perspective and why they did it. Um, and I think the, you know, the timing of the release of the book could not have been better. So for anybody who's sort of thinking about, you know, how can you make change? How can you make a difference? Um, what this book is really about is a few people who had some vision and some passion and said, how do we really change things on the ground? Um, so I would highly recommend it. And I'm so glad that you asked that question. You know, one of the things that I'm really looking forward to when I'm done with school, uh, which I hope will be in about a month or two, is novels. Um, I love current fiction. I love novels. Um, I'd love to get back into being in a book club. I'm always, you know, really excited. I know that you last year, you know, set your 52 book challenge and surpassed it. And I was, um, you know, delighted and impressed with that. So when I'm done with all this school stuff, it's going to be novels and literature for sure. But right now, history and, and my policy stuff, but that's one that's, I think, accessible to everybody. And it's not long. It's not long. So good short read. <laughs> Sure. Um, so I have uh, probably the best way is um, to look at our two websites, um, www.rchnfoundation.org, um, and my contact information is there. 
or or www.chcchronicles.org. So CHC and then the word chronicles, C-H-R-O-N-I-C-L-E-S. And that's um, another one of our websites that's on um, the history of the Community Health Center movement, um, story by story, history by history, organization by organization. And again, you'll find our contact info there. And um, I would love to connect with people. So please do look us up. And if there's anything that piques your interest, shoot me a message. Um, But that's where you'll find me on the web. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Vegula Jacobs. She is such a delight, such a pleasure, and I think such an inspiration. I hope you really enjoyed her story. I really loved how we weaved in and out from discussions on public health policy to her getting her PhD, finishing it very soon, I know, and also the story of her mother, which really touched my heart, and I hope that it touched yours, too. This is just the beginning, folks. We've got a lot more planned in 2017. 99 more women you're going to be meeting and hearing their stories. If you want to stay in touch on everything that's going on, I would suggest heading over to facebook.com slash the notable woman so that you can stay in the know. I'll talk to you later. Have a great week. Bye for now.